Uh, We are in Daniel again today. Daniel chapter 6 is where we're headed. You might want to go there. I, um, I won't lament the Bryce Harper signing any more than right now to say, I told you. I told you last week the writing was on the wall, and now for the next 13 years, I will point back to this day as the worst moment of my Phillies fandom. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so likely the most familiar story in Daniel's life today. In fact, when I, when I uh, consulted some commentaries, I, I actually purchased a couple new commentaries getting ready for this series on Daniel, and like three out of the five of them had a lion on the front, right? Like this, this is the, the story of Daniel's life, Daniel and the lion's den. Even people who don't have much of a a foundation in the scriptures at least have an awareness that Daniel is the guy in the Bible who dealt with the lions. And that's that's the general um, perception. But before we we get into Daniel chapter 6 this morning, I want to keep in mind a couple of big picture things. So this is the sixth chapter of this book so far, and we have been looking at um, stories and episodes from Daniel's life and the life of his friends. This is the last chapter before it gets caught up in the visions and dreams and, and animals with like four wings and four heads and little horns boasting great things. And this is the last week before I really get nervous is what I'm trying to say. All right, so uh, this is the last one of these episodes from his life. Daniel, at this point, is likely 80 years old. We, we met Daniel as a teenager. His entire life has been lived in these chapters in front of us. Just let that sink in. We, we mentioned that a couple times through this, this series, that we, we gloss over chapter to chapter, and we, we, we fail to realize that 30 or 40 years might have transpired since the last events. The book is initially written to exiled Jews living in Babylon. No homes, no liturgy, tempted, as we find in the Psalms, tempted to hang up the harps and just stop singing. Tempted to give up hope because they are surrounded by the enemy. They were stolen and deported and taken from their home. They've been indoctrinated in a new way of life and now they're stuck in this foreign land. And this book, as it comes to the exiles, makes this one theme crystal clear that God is still in control even though, even though the kingdoms of this world appear to align themselves against him and for a season appear to be winning. He reminds the exiles that God is still faithful and he's still completely in control. So we have Daniel now and An 80-year-old man, innocent, condemned to death because of his loyalty to God, which he chose over obedience to an arbitrary decree of our government. It is not just a fun child story. And we we kind of have the precious moments Bible version of this, right? Like so we we imagine cute and cuddly lion kittens. Like that. Okay, so do you guys see this story about the hiker who killed the mountain lion with his bare hands? And now they're like, oh, it was just a kitten. Like that really matters. The guy's on a run in the middle of the woods and gets attacked. I don't care how old it is. He's still, but anyway, so we, we're thinking of, we think of, of, of the lion's den and we probably think of like stuffed animals or like our, our, our pet dogs, like even like a big golden retriever. Like, oh, there's like four big golden retrievers in a den. And he said, no, no, this, this is, 
This is a dramatic event. This is not just a fun child's story. This is a a dramatic showdown between the God of Daniel, God Most High, and the gods of Babylon. I think it's also interesting, as, as Alistair Begg pointed out, that the greatest trial of Daniel's life didn't come at the beginning, but at the end. He's... He's big, on, he's big on saying that the test comes at the end. Right? That, that's one of Alistair Begg's big, big moments. Chad has helped me remember that through the years, a time or two, when I'm whining and lamenting about lacks of progress and stuff like that. Oh, what, is your, what does Alistair Begg say, Matt? The test is at the end, right? It's interesting to see that, that the most, the most um, well-known well, and documented story, the, the one that marks his life the clearest, is, is coming to us at the very end not at the beginning. And it's, it's encouraging to see that he didn't tear down in the final days what he took the better part of 70 years to build. So we're going to look at Daniel today. I've, I've entitled the, the message today, Faithful to the End, around those, that theme that, that he, this is happening at the end of his life. And he didn't, uh, he didn't put his feet up and coast into this season He was still running full tilt. Here's what we find about Daniel. The first thing we find about him as he's faithful to the end is that he was an exemplary man. Look at at verses 1 through 5 of of Daniel chapter 6. It said, It pleased Darius, who's now the king, it pleased him to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. He was an exemplary man. The king's task was to establish a government, right? The, the, uh, the events of chapter 5 are just a, a, short, um, a short jaunt in the rearview mirror. And so now this new king has to establish a government that would work. He needed to build a team and a system of officials to ensure that he didn't uh, suffer any loss. That means territory, people, tax revenue. So he needed, he needed uh, governors and leaders scattered throughout the empire to make sure that uh, he was uh, not suffering any loss of resources. So he appointed 120 satraps, which means protector of the kingdom, which I think is a really cool title. Like if I had a title, I'd want to be like the protector of the realm or something like that. Not satrap is... I don't know what, I guess it works. Anyway, so Daniel says, uh, tells us here that because of his excellent spirit, Daniel is one of three high officials. So the satraps had to report to three guys. Three guys had charge over 120. Daniel is rising in that upper level. He has now become the clear front runner in, those, those, uh, in that group of three. So excellent, so distinguished was this guy that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. The king planned to make him the leader of these three and thereby the leader of the 120, thereby the leader of the kingdom. 
How many times in the Bible have we seen God's servant because his spirit is on them, because of gifts that he's given them rising to places of great influence? So Daniel is distinguished, not because he's got next level skills. Daniel is distinguished because the spirit of God is in him. Remember, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He, he communes with God in a way that no one else does. God has appointed him for this, empowered him for this, strengthened him for this. That's what makes him different. Remember, in chapter one, we're told that he, he and his colleagues were 10 times better than the other guys because God did something. And this gets the attention of his colleagues. They were gunning for him. He's not only distinguished, he's also a bit despised here. His promotion means that they're not going to get the accolades. And when they heard of the king's desire to appoint Daniel to that position, kind of like a prime minister's position, they were not pleased because it meant that they were limited in their growth trajectory, and so they wanted to get rid of the competition. So they watched him, and they dug around looking for dirt on Daniel, and they couldn't find it. They couldn't find any places where he was compromising. They couldn't find any place where he was failing in his duties as a high official. Because in addition to having a great gift from God, Daniel was also faithful. It's good to be good at your job. It's good to be faithful to the calling that God placed on your life. It's good to see your vocational calling as part of what God has asked of you in this world. And it's good to be faithful at your tasks as unto the Lord. But the only way that they could, they could see to trap Daniel was to do so on religious grounds because of his faithfulness to God. Daniel, Daniel was a man who was an exemplary guy in every way. But, but his skill and his abilities and his position didn't protect him from the onslaught of enemies. Because he was also a targeted man. He was a targeted man. Verse 6, they come as one. The high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the, ki- the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. They come as one in agreement. They agree together against Daniel. But they don't just agree against Daniel, they're agreeing against Daniel's God. They are aligning themselves against the Most High. Dangerous place to be. They come together, and it's interesting to see the way they, they work the ego of the king. Oh, Darius, live forever. We all agree here. Everyone agrees. This, this is not the point of the message. This is just a timeout for us today. Quick leadership lesson. If someone comes to you and says, everybody says they're lying, Categorically, they are lying. No, not everyone says that. No, not everyone hates you. No, not everyone disagrees with the direction you're headed. No, not everyone thinks you're a tool. Some people do. Likely the guy talking to you does. And maybe his wife. But in general, no. No, not everyone thinks that. You're you're never as good as as your supporters say, and you're never quite as bad as your critics believe. Somewhere in the middle, right? 
So anyway, they they come and say, look, king, everyone thinks you should do this. It's the only only thing fitting for somebody as glorious and powerful and awesome as you. You should make a decree that no one can pray to anybody except to you. And they can't pray through anybody. No, not through a priest. They can only come to you. Sounds pretty good. So the king says, well, we'll establish that then. He signs the injunction according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. The law of the Medes and the Persians was binding. That once it was enacted in the law, it, was, it, was, it held fast and it wasn't changeable. Thankfully, the founders and framers of our Constitution saw the dangers in that and made a process for amending the Constitution, for amending our government, for adding and taking away from things through the years that were um, outdated or unreasonable or unhelpful. But the law of the Medes and the Persians was not the same way. Once it was enacted, it was done. The king knew that, so he signed it. No harm, no foul. Everything went well. The Bible says that when Daniel, look at verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, stop right there, he knew what the document was, that it it was a ban on prayer to anybody but the king. When he knew that the document had been signed, he also knew it carried the weight of destruction in the lion's den. That if you were caught praying to somebody other than the king within the next 30 days, you would be tossed into the lion's den. When Daniel heard that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Just think about that for a moment. Think about all that's riding on that encounter right there. Daniel heard what was going on. He knew that they signed the document. He knew that that meant his decision to be faithful to God put him at odds with the king that he served. And yet rather than let them let that dissuade him, he returned to his home where his windows were open and did what he had always done. Got down on his knees 3 times a day and prayed. Daniel is a man of great integrity. A couple years ago, I saw saw the the movie Sully with Tom Hanks about Captain uh, Chesley Sullenberger who landed in American Airlines Airbus 320 in the Hudson River. Remember, soon after takeoff from LaGuardia in January of 2009, we probably have all, we all remember seeing it on TV. The flight en route to Charlotte hit a large flock of birds almost immediately. The plane lost power to both its engines and began to fall from the sky rapidly, 155 passengers on board. Sully made the decision that a return trip to LaGuardia and an alternate landing at Teterboro in New Jersey were both not viable options, and he chose instead to do something incredibly courageous and a little bit wild and land the plane in the Hudson River. And the film focuses more on the aftermath of the crash and the subsequent investigation by the NTSB, offering viewers a glimpse into the personal and emotional turmoil that plagued Captain Sullenberger after the crash. And at one point in the film, Sully is having a conversation with his co-pilot about the investigation, which is dialed in on a 208-second span of their lives. 208 seconds. In such a small amount of time, all things considered... 
And Sully mentions that he has flown airplanes for over four decades. That he has safely delivered four million passengers to their desired destinations. And his career is going to be judged by 208 seconds. Quite a harrowing ordeal that Captain Sullenberger endured. And ultimately the NTSB rightly determined that he made the only choice available to him. Saved the lives of hundreds if not thousands of people. But what a thought as I was watching that movie, that his entire career can be defined in just 208 seconds. And that led me to another thought regarding personal integrity. How many men and women have fallen from their positions as leaders because of a few short moments of indiscretion? How many men and women have lost ministry and influence and family because they allowed sin to reign in small pockets of their lives? And the sum total of their contribution is great. But they were not men and women of integrity. How many otherwise noteworthy careers have been derailed due to those failures and mistakes? And the lesson is this. We, we cannot allow what we, what we invest our entire lives building. We cannot allow it to crumble in the weight of lust and greed in just a matter of seconds. Why do I bring that up? Well, because Daniel had every opportunity at this point to hide. Daniel's, Daniel's faith was public. These guys knew about his commitment to his God. They knew about his prayer life. They knew about his devotion, or else they wouldn't have figured out a way to trap him. They knew all about this. He very easily could have just said, you know what, it's too great a risk. I've been faithful to God all these years, surely he'll understand. Maybe if I close the windows and if I just pray a little quieter. Maybe I don't have to pray three times a day. Maybe I can pray at night when no one's watching. Maybe I can move into the shadows and do all this. But that's exactly what Daniel decides not to do. He hears that the the decree has been signed and he immediately returns to his home and begins to pray. Because there are times in our lives, some of you might ask, well, hold on a second. He's, he's breaking a rule. And those of you who are rule followers like me know the, know the great stress that this causes. It's a rule. You can't break a rule. That's why they're there, right? He's breaking a law. I mean, Romans 13 would be very clear to us, right? That God's authority is shared with human institutions by his providential will and that we would do well to listen and obey because our governors are God's servants for our good. By the way, that's, that's what the Bible says about our governing authorities. So, I mean, what's he doing here? He's disobeying. Well, Daniel's, Daniel's story for us is a prime example that when the commands of the land, the law of the land, require us to violate the commands of God, we choose the commands of God every time. At this point, Alistair Begg, as I was listening to him, he, he poses a really piercing question. He said, uh, he said this, this decree didn't change Daniel's prayer life at all, but I wonder if prayer were banned with the same weight of consequence today for the next 30 days, would it make any distinguishable, noticeable difference in my life? What? If prayer were banned today for 30 days, if somebody came and said, listen, the God you serve is a bigot. We will not allow you to pray to him for 30 days. 
Would it make any distinguishable, noticeable impact in my life? Which is interesting, right? And really challenging. Convicting. Convicting to think that that we make such a fuss about prayer being removed from public institutions like the schools, and yet we're content when prayer has been removed from our own homes, from our own lives, from our own prayer closets, from our churches. That's not the point today, but it was a challenging thought. These guys come by agreement again to catch him, and he was caught red-handed. And they dragged him back before the king, and they said, oh, king, live forever. Weren't you the one who just, I mean, I don't know, maybe my memory's not serving me correctly, but I believe it was you that just signed the injunction that, that states that if anybody prays to anybody other than you, they get tossed in the lion's den and devoured, right? And king says, yes, I did that, and it still stands. That's a great idea. The most terrific idea, it's an amazing idea. It's the best idea I ever had. And they said, well, you might like to know, O king, live forever, that Daniel of the exiles, <laughs> he's, not, he's not doing what you told him to do. In fact, he doesn't pay any attention to you at all. He disregards your leadership entirely, which is an absolute lie. That's not the truth at all. The truth is not that Daniel disregards him or doesn't appreciate him or fails to serve him faithfully. That's not actually what's going on at all. In this one instance, he's choosing to obey God and not the king. But one pastor said this way, the time of crisis didn't create a disciplined lifestyle for Daniel. It just revealed a disciplined lifestyle for Daniel. The crisis doesn't create the disciplined lifestyle. It just revealed it. It exposed it for what it was. So Daniel was a targeted man, and now Daniel's a condemned man. Verse 14, this distresses the king. He's actually upset about this. When he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He instantly begins to think about, how can I overturn this, this edict? How can I stop this from happening? How can I leverage the weight of my authority to change my rule? Surely this should be easy enough. He's the king of the most powerful nation in the world. He's the one who said it. All he would have to do is say, I was kidding. Only joking. Everyone can die except for Daniel, right? All he has to do is go back and say it. So he's working all day to try to find a way. And they come back. They come back and say, oh, king, silly king, you can't do that. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be revoked. I wonder if at that point he knew he was played. I wonder, any, any of you ever have that experience? I, as somebody, I have a friend who serves in pastoral leadership. And uh, there have been a number of times through the years where he felt like that buttered up, flattered, and then caught. Ah, so that's what we were getting at. You ever, you ever been there before where you realize, oh, okay, I, I'm the joke in this one. That's fun. So he's stuck. He's bound by duty. So he calls for the execution of Daniel. And reluctantly, he calls for the execution, but he did, and he declares to Daniel in verse 16, Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. <laughs> he doesn't want him to die. 
He actually wants Daniel to live and he wants God to intervene. An innocent man whose only fault was his faithfulness to God. Hmm, think about that for a second. An innocent man, far from home, despised by his friends, trumped up charges, being offered up unto death. Sounds like a familiar story that I've heard before. Oh, it gets better. They seal him in the lion's den with a stone. A makeshift tomb, if you will. They lower the prophet of God, the innocent prophet of God living in exile, the one on the trumped up charges, who's rejected and despised by his brothers and friends. They, they lower him into a makeshift tomb and seal it with a stone, pressed with the signet of the ring of the king, with the authority of the king. Does that sound like another story we've heard? about a self-proclaimed Messiah buried in a tomb, sealed with a stone, surrounded by Roman soldiers, so that there was no chance that the tomb could be opened, so that his demise would be sure and certain. this, This was an act of finality. This sealed Daniel's fate. And the king was so distressed that he left, and there was a night of, of fasting. No diversions were brought to him. He couldn't eat. He was unable to play Fortnite. He was, he couldn't even focus on a game of Scrabble. He had nothing. All he did was fast and pray throughout the night. And as the sun rose in the morning, early, early in the morning, at the break of dawn, at the first light of day, the king went in haste to Daniel's tomb. In ancient Babylonian custom, declared a a prisoner innocent if they were tortured on the previous day and survived until the next. He runs in haste to the tomb to see what was there. But he doesn't actually believe it. He cries out with anguish before he gets there. Daniel, did it work? Did God, did your God save you? Was he able to do it? And he cries out, yes, king. God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions and I am unharmed. And there's, there, now there is the Sunday school story right there. God came and closed the mouths of hungry lions so they didn't tear the prophet of God apart. He's unharmed. Not even a scratch. Kind of like the boys in the furnace from a couple weeks ago. They didn't even smell like fire. Their hair wasn't singed. He comes up out of, I mean, how many of you have cats? You, it's okay. You're allowed to admit that here. Shame on you all, all of you. No. I love dogs way more than cats, I, but I think, I think cats are good for other people to have, just not me. Right. You ever play with a cat? Like, you get scratched just playing with them. My sister has this cat. I hope she doesn't listen. My sister has this demon cat that bites me, right? And, and I don't know why. Right? I sit on the couch, the cat comes up and sits down. Every, you think everything's going fine. That's, that's how cats are. They're sneaky like that. You think everything's going fine. All of a sudden, it turns and the cat chomps down on my thumb. So I, I did what every, any self-respecting man, I backhanded the cat and it fell on the floor. I did not. I did not. I wanted to. I love animals. They taste delicious. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to get emails on that one. All right. Um, where am I? Oh, the lions. That was funny, by the way. That was really funny. All right. Um, the lions. It's not just the kid's story now. God shows up in the midst. He shuts the mouths of the lions. 
not even a scratch. And what happens then? What happens then is God doles out punishment, not on Daniel, but on all those who accused him. On those who didn't just accuse him, but aligned themselves against his God. On the men and their families for whom they were responsible. Okay. So that reminds me of another judgment that's going to come. It'll come to those who reject the kingdom of God as revealed through his Christ, his son. Men, women, and children who, who will not embrace Jesus as king will face the wrath and judgment of a holy and a righteous God. This story isn't just about Daniel. We're told that as the people were thrown into the den, that before their bodies even hit the ground, the lions devoured them and their bones were broken. It's not that the lions weren't hungry. They were hungry enough. God closed their mouths and protected Daniel, but brought judgment on those who rejected God's rule and leadership and instead aligned themselves against him. And King, King Darius sees all this and he issues a decree. We've seen a lot of these decrees. My goodness, these decrees and a dollar will buy you a cup of coffee. This is so ridiculous. He sends out yet another decree because of what he's just experienced. And here's what he says. He sends it to all the people's nations, languages, everybody who dwells under my rule and reign, let them tremble before the God of Daniel. Okay, so like a couple days ago, he said, you're not even allowed to pray to this God. Today he says, look, based on what I've experienced, you should fall down and tremble before the God of Daniel. He, the God of Daniel, he is the living God. He is active and moving he is not static. He is not like an idol carved with human hands that has ears but can't hear and eyes but can't see, a mouth but can't speak. He is a God who is alive and moving and active in the hearts of his people. And his kingdom endures forever. Longer than the kingdom of Babylon, longer than the Medo-Persian Empire, longer than the Greeks, longer than the Romans, his kingdom will ultimately win and be established forever. It will never be destroyed. No matter what strength of military might is brought against it, his kingdom will never be destroyed. It's secure forever, and he will reign until the very end. And his might and his strength and his power is displayed in the Bible yet again through his deliverance. How is it that God's strength and power and might are most clearly on display? In the Old Testament, it was the act of the Exodus, the liberation of his people. Salvation in God is the, the hallmark, the testimony, the stamp of God's power and might. In the New Testament, the stamp of God's power and might is resurrection. Where is the testimony that this God is living and enduring and it was in the deliverance of Daniel. He rescued his prophet. He's great because he protects and delivers. His acts of salvation are a testimony to his greatness. My friends, that not much has changed. Not much has changed in our lives. The testimony to his power and greatness is most clearly seen in people like you and me who were lost but now were found, who were blind but now we can see, who were enemies and now we've been welcomed in as sons and daughters of God. He saved Daniel. And then we get this timestamp. Daniel prospered under the rule of Darius and under Cyrus the Persian. Daniel was elevated yet again to a high position and receives great honor among the people. 
probably serving like that prime minister in that role. And here we see Daniel's faithfulness in old age. We see his faithfulness in a godly example. We see faithfulness in prayer, faithfulness in trial, faithfulness in his testimony. But what does it all mean? So what? What what does that mean to me today? I have heard, how many of you grew up in the church? All right. I have heard the Daniel in the lion's den story about 647,000 times. It's, It's one of the easiest stories to share with children Why? Because it so clearly communicates God's power to save. They get it instantly. They're wired to receive story. And it's a good one. But guys, it's not just about the prophet today. Nestled in, in, in the middle of this book, there are big themes that are going on that this little vignette shows us. And so we're gonna start with some big picture things again today. And then we'll move into some real-time daily life stuff too. But but that's kind of how we that's kind of how we interpret the Bible, isn't it? We don't go to the Bible scanning through and then just, oh, there's one. As for ten horns out of this kingdom, ten shall rise, and start to apply it to our lives today. We go to the Bible to understand who God is based on what he's revealed to us about his, himself, his character, his nature, his purposes in the world. And then out of what we know about who God is and what he's doing in the world, we draw the application for our daily lives. What he's told us, we know and we come to be able to apply to our lives. So that's kind of how we're doing it today. Here's something that that struck me on a big picture. God is not disconnected from people's trials and persecutions. He's rather intervening on their behalf to deliver them and to defend the honor of his own name in their lives. He is not, he's not isolated. He's not gone. He's not abandoning you. And you might feel that way because some of your lives feel a little bit out of control today. And it doesn't feel like he's holding you very tightly today. It feels like things are unsettled. It feels like things are uncertain. And you might give in to the enemy's lie that God doesn't love you, doesn't care about you, and he's not aware of your needs. That is a lie, categorically. God is not distant and separated from your suffering. He's involved in the middle of it, working right in it to deliver and to defend the honor of his own name. And friends, hear me. He will not suffer his name to be tarnished forever. He might be letting it go for now. But that doesn't mean that he's a pushover. Again, we go back to Peter, right? He's not slack in his promises. He will be faithful. He's patient. He wants all to come to repentance. He's patient in fulfilling them in hopes that people will turn to him. But there's coming a day where he will settle his accounts And because we know that's true, man, that's a big picture theme. God will one day reconcile this. He will one day hold accountable those who rebel against him and persecute his own. Because we know that there's coming a day of judgment, where a day of reckoning, we don't have to carry the weight of justice on our shoulders. We don't have to carry the weight of judgment on our shoulders or the weight of vengeance on our shoulders. You don't have to carry the weight of defending the honor of God's name. He's perfectly capable to do it himself. What that means, though, is that we, we can be faithful to God's calling today 
and carry the responsibility he's given us. To honor him, to glorify him, to serve him with everything we've got, but to not insert ourselves in carrying the load that he is carrying. Just like the exiles in Babylon, we can rest assured that the living God is in complete control and he'll show himself to be the most high God at some point, in, at some day, in, in a time of his choosing. Secondly, we see today that the real battle is not just between Daniel and his jealous peers. The real conflict here is between the most high God that Daniel serves and the polytheistic many gods of the Babylonians. Which is exactly what is playing out for the exiles at this time. Separated from their home, going on 70 years. Not seeing the promises of God fulfilled. Not seeing the movement of God the way they anticipated. Wondering if God would still be faithful. Wondering if he was still stronger than the gods of the Babylonians. Is he still faithful? Is his word trustworthy? Wondering because they're not seeing today what they anticipated seeing. The conflict is between Daniel's God and the God of the Babylonians and the most high winds. Now, let's, let's go to like a, a real personal application. Daniel knew God in such a way that when his very life is endangered, he stayed faithful to God both publicly and privately. And this, his most famous stand, is made at the end of his life, not at the beginning. It's not how you start, but how you finish, right? He had been privileged to see the hand of God working and moving behind the scenes for close to 70 years. And that struck me today, this morning actually, as I was doing a final run through, I had to change some of, the, some of my notes, that Daniel's story is mentioned ever so briefly in Hebrews chapter 11, that hallmark of faith. He's not mentioned by name, but in 1133, we're told in Hebrews that through faith, some conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. But that's not what inspires me. What inspires me isn't that Daniel's name is mentioned in the hall of faith. What inspires me is that Daniel's connection to God and his faith sustained him even though he never got to see the fulfillment of the promise. What was the promise? The promise based on the prophets was that only 70 years would transpire and they would go back. He didn't get to go back. He spent his whole life praying for, leveraging his influence for, working towards, trusting God for the return of the exiles and he never saw it. He never saw it. But just because he didn't see it didn't mean he struggled to stay faithful. And therein is a lesson for all of us in our culture of instant gratification. Just because we're not seeing today, right now, this moment, the answer to our prayers or the result we want or the one we think is best just because we don't see God giving us the trinkets we're asking for doesn't mean in any way that he's not holding for us a great resolution. And it certainly doesn't mean that we don't, 
that, that, we are, um, that we should be unfaithful to him just because we don't see it today. We can stay joyfully faithful, deeply committed, and satisfied in him even when, even when he delivers to us a bitter road and a challenging road because we wait in hope. And there we find such connection with Daniel, don't we? We who look back through the cross of Jesus and we see through the scriptures, through the testimony of Christ, through the testimony of the empty tomb and thousands of years of church history, we see the faithfulness of God to bring his kingdom on earth, to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we know he's coming again. And we look at the world around us and it looks like it is a catastrophic mess because it is from our perspective and from God's, it's controlled and held in his right hand. And there's coming a day, and I don't know when that day is, and no matter how you interpret the next six weeks, you don't know when that day is either, I promise you. But there's coming a day when he will return to settle his accounts, to judge the living and the dead. But just because I don't see that today doesn't mean I can't still be joyfully faithful to him in hope. There's coming a day where he will respond to every prayer I've asked of him. There's coming a day where he will resolve conflict. There's coming a day where he will restore those with whom we are in conflict. Just because I don't see it today doesn't mean I can stop being faithful. And in that, there's a, a great encouragement to us. You know, reading this passage, we cannot help but think of another righteous prophet of God far from home in an exile of sorts, wrongly accused by his contemporaries, sentenced to die, being sealed in a tomb, and miraculously rising again. And in this way, in this way, the Bible once again points us to Jesus. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what God would be pressing into your spirit as we, we gather today, but I encourage you, I encourage you to follow Daniel's example and humble yourself before God, submit to his leadership in your life, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Our God is faithful. He's shown himself faithful time and time again. He will show himself faithful again. Don't give up hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you teach us. Thank you for Daniel and the story that we're enjoying, we're just watching his life of faithfulness and endurance. And God, thank you for the power you've given him, that you put him in these places. You've given him gifts and abilities. And Lord, we, we are inspired by his faithfulness, but we also recognize that God, you can empower that kind of faithfulness in us. Lord, I pray that we would run hard to the very end, that we wouldn't lose hope. Lord, help us. We, we don't always see the answers to what we're looking for. God, we can't understand how, how decades and decades later after Roe v. Wade, we still see millions of children aborted. We don't get that. It breaks our hearts that you won't answer our prayers in that regard. And we begin to wonder, God, will you ever reckon that? Will you ever bring justice? Will you ever act swiftly on our behalf? It's easy to get discouraged and think that you're unable, that you're not listening, that you're not present. 
God, let the testimony of the scriptures shape our perspective today. You are not far from us. You are in the midst of the suffering. You walk among us. You are not out of control. Somehow in your perfect wisdom, you hold it all together. Help us, God, to rest in your plan and to be faithful to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.